your argument in the case of Derek Cardozi, am I pronouncing his name right, Cardozi, the appellant for the State of Indiana Appellee. Uh, the appellant's counsel will argue first. This is a direct, this is a case that comes directly to us from the trial court um, because it is, uh, the sentence was a life without the possibility of parole. Be representing uh, Mr. Cardozi today at counsel table, we have Harry Falk, welcome Mr. Falk, and Linda Harris, welcome Ms. Harris. Representing the State of Indiana, we have Lula Gore, welcome Ms. Gore, as well as Jeffrey Drinsky, the prosecutor. Um, we also have some schools attending today. I appreciate the teachers coming. We have Kingsway Christian School from Hendricks County. Stacy Nolan, the teacher, could you stand? Thank you for bringing your class today. Also, um, that's the only school we have now. We have another school coming at the next hearing. Um, are the parties ready to proceed? All right, Mr. Folk. May it please the court. Derek Cardozi and the co-defendant Sebastian Wedding were charged with three counts of felony murder. Wedding entered a plea agreement and sentenced to 55 years in the Department of Corrections. Cardozi was convicted after a nine-day jury trial and sentenced to life without parole. Cardozi has raised five issues in his brief. I'd like to address two of those specifically today. The first issue I'd like to address is number three in the brief, whether the trial court abuses discretion in admitting the co-conspirators' text messages from wedding to Cardozi into evidence over the objection of trial counsel. The text messages in this case were a linchpin of the state of Indiana's case. That linchpin I refer to as it was used to put Cardozi at the axe. It's important for the court to understand that I attempted to take, uh, yes, I was trial counsel. I attempted to take Mr. Wedding's deposition at trial, before trial, and he invoked his Fifth Amendment. I was never given the opportunity to cross-examine or question Mr. Wedding. His statements were admitted at trial in violation of the Confrontation Clause under the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments of the United States Constitution. Well, Counsel, the Sixth Amendment is implicated if those messages were testimonial. Well, tell, tell us why you believe they were, and therefore implicate the Sixth Amendment's right to confrontation. I agree with the court. Thank you, Judge. The first inquiry one of the questions this court has to address is, were they testimonial? And to make them testimonial, I would direct the court's attention to Melendez. And in Melendez versus Massachusetts, the Supreme Court said extrajudicial statements that were made under circumstances which lead an objective witness reasonably to believe that the statements would be available for use later at trial are testimonial. Wedding and Cardozi, these text messages, they attempted to delete them. 
they thought they were going to be potentially used against them. Further, Your Honor, the state of Indiana used those text messages in their case in chief. But what, I mean, you, you agree that Cardozo's own text messages, what he said, are admissible, correct? Absolutely, Your Honor. All right, so isn't there sort of a fairly strong argument that given the highly incriminating statements he made that he was texting his friend, that really, whether harmless error or just context, I mean, most of the damage was done in his own words, correct? I don't concur. I'm sorry, Your Honor. If you review the record... I did, and I, I looked at the text messages and, and what he said, as well as what the other individual said. Wedding's testimony, his text message was, I'm leaving the door open, go to work. Oh, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of text messages. There's a lot of text They were, they were texting away during this period of time. Yes, there were. That's the one that puts Cardozi at the burglary. That's the one that was used to used by the great state of Indiana for the LWAP aggravator, which is the second issue I wanted to raise. That shows because one of the LWAP aggravators was the burglary. Can we back up on the confrontation issue or lack thereof? Uh, are you claiming that the case you cited sets forth the entire test to determine whether or not it's testimonial? Your Honor, I'm, I'm struggling with with the text messages and, and you're claiming that they uh, were inadmissible. Um, and the question from the Chief Justice or the inquiry was whether or not they were inadmissible, perhaps there was harmless error. I'm still back on, I'm not sure why they're inadmissible. May I address, you have really two questions. May I address? I just have one. I'm sorry if I confuse you. Okay. I'm still not satisfied that the text messages of the other individual were inadmissible. The text messages of the other individual were very germane to the LWAP burglary. And that is my real concern in the second issue, because the state had to prove the burglary aggravator to get to the LWAP. And if you delete those text messages, then we have an instant problem with the LWAP, because they had to prove LWAP, the aggravator. I'm following you. I'm still concerned that as to your argument that they were inadmissible and you cited the Mendez case and, and seemed to move on and I'm, I'm not satisfied with that so I was just giving you an opportunity to enlighten me a little bit more. Your Honor, the argument I have as to their being testimonial is directly related to the language of Melendez which talks about extrajudicial statements that the parties would believe would be used against them. They thought they would be used against them. They deleted them. And the so, state so the bigger role, because I mean, how we decide this case affects this case and other cases. So the bigger role is any time two people are involved in an activity and delete their texts prior to being arrested, because they deleted them, that is the test for just, test, uh, that it's testimonial? Their, their act of deleting their text. 
no. That, uh, I'm okay. sorry. So how, so how, why do you think the conversations that they had over the period of time were, were done in, um, thinking that they would be admissible in a later trial? The best case I have is they thought they were going to be admissible because they deleted them. They were worried about them coming in and being used. So what's somebody. the test? The test, I would say, is it goes right back to Melendez, which did, is... Did you cite Melendez in, in your briefing to our court? I didn't find it. No, I, Your Honor, we're going to be making an additional brief case law. Yeah, counsel, is, I mean, is your argument, is it grounded in the Sixth Amendment, or are you making a hearsay argument here? And if it's a hearsay argument, what about an exception for uh, statements of a co-conspirator? These were two people conspiring. Um, and communicating with each other about their crime. Absolutely, Your Honor. Thank you. Your Honor, what you're talking about, I believe, is 801, and that would allow the co-conspirators. But if you go to 804B3, you're going to see that when a witness is unavailable, the co-conspirators' statements are not admissible and are not a hearsay exception. This court has adopted the rule that's not in the federal rules. So when we adopted the federal <laughs> rules, we did not adopt them carte blanche. This court was concerned about the cases of Crawford and was concerned about Melendez. So you in 804 specifically said, we're not going to incorporate that. A statement or confession offered against the accused in a criminal case made by a co-defendant or other person implicating both the declarant and the accused is not within the exception. Well, that's a Bruton issue. I, I concur. But These we are conversations between a defendant and his co-conspirator. Isn't, isn't that a whole different set of facts than the one you're describing in, in your hypothetical within that rule? Your Honor, I'm relying on the rule that the court has imposed under 804 and the exception to the hearsay rule that this court has adopted contrary to the federal rules that we adopted, that were adopted by the federal courts. <clears throat> so I'm very concerned about that. This is, and Your Honor, you're, I'm very concerned about this because the this issue and the admission of those text messages were fundamental in the burglary aggravator for the LWAP conviction. So if those text messages, which were used to push Cardozi into the acts, you take those out, what, were you, what was used in the LWAP determination on the burglary? Well, not, a, not exactly right. You'd still, you can see that even if it was error, let's talk about the harmlessness or not. You have the text messages from the defendant, right? Yes, those, sir. Those are admissible, correct? I agree under 801, yes, sir. So at a minimum, the state is going to be able to argue to the jury what inferences should be drawn, what they believe those messages suggest what is going on. And defense, you, without those text messages, would have been able to argue before the jury, no, 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 that's not reasonable. That's not, this is, this is really what was going on. And the jury still would have been able to make a decision. 
as to which of the explanations put forth by the state or you happened. So uh, now I'm, I'm, if I accept your argument that it was error um, for purposes of our conversation, I'm hung up on why is it not harmless error? I understand it's significant and, and if it's there, it makes the state's case much easier. But if it's not there, I'm not sure it reaches the, the anything but harmless. So help me out. Thank you. Maybe John. I'm the only one. So help me out. No, sir. It's very important, and you're getting right there. The burglary and the text messages. Good. Are I'm, I'm glad I'm right where somewhere needs me to be. <laughs> I feel better now. Thank you. I'm sorry, sir. No, no, not, not at all. Your Honor. The, the concern I have is the text messages that are directly related to the burglary and the robbery, which were used in the LWAP, and that LWAP has to be narrowly construed in what the jury looks at. So if the jury wrongfully looked at the text messages, it couldn't have utilized the evidence to substantiate the LWAP. Counsel, what if, what if the state had evidence uh, obtained from, say, a wiretap um, and a conversation between the defendant and his co-conspirator? Are you suggesting that the only thing the state could put into evidence at that point would be the, the, the defendant's portion of the conversation and that the jury couldn't hear uh, the other side of the conversation captured on that wiretap? This is where, Your Honor, is the declarant available or unavailable under 804? And in this case, wedding, the declarant was unavailable. He exercised his Fifth Amendment and was never given, I was never given a chance to cross-examine. And cross-examine is the greatest method the courts have used to determine the reliability of these statements. So could it be used? So your answer if, to my question would be yes. It would not, the, the jury would not hear the other side of the conversation. If the declarant had invoked his fifth minute and was unavailable, no, you can't. Because you, but in the normal case, if the declarant is available, Yes, it can. It goes right in. And I think the court can also say, hey, if it's a, if he's available and you've had a chance to cross-examine him, it comes in, both sides. Counsel, in your time that remains, do you want to discuss issue five? Your Honor, that was the LWAP, and I've addressed a considerable amount of the LWAP concern I have. You know, the the issue I have for the LWAP consideration is there was no evidence of prying or breaking. There was no evidence of stealing. All the evidence goes to directly to the declarant, Mr. Wedding, not. So there was insufficient basis for the LWAP aggravator. Okay. I am out of time. We'll hear from you again on rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Gore. <laughs> Please the court. This court should affirm defendant's convictions for three counts of murder, two counts of level five felony assisting a criminal, and level six felony theft. 
Could what you give, and I should have asked before, could you give a little bit of factual background for the um, students that are here today? Absolutely. On the morning of August 28, 2016, Wedding and Cardozi broke and entered into the home of Thomas Spears and an individual who was residing there at the, at the time, Babs. They murdered these people and left one elderly woman, Mrs. Buck, alive because she was considered their grandmother. They stole items from the home and they then tried to cover up their crimes by taking Thomas's vehicle, changing their clothing, purchasing items in order to be able to facilitate getting rid of the evidence, then dumped Thomas's vehicle about three blocks away from where Wedding's grandmother resided, along with the murder weapons. And then Cardozi spent time watching the house from across the street to ensure that the police would not be suspicious of them. He would send that information to Wedding, from, who was afar, um, to essentially notify him of the information that the police had, whether they had the murder weapons, whether they knew where the vehicle was. Now, I want to begin by addressing um, defense counsel's concern about Wedding's messages. First, these messages were not testimonial in nature, so there was no uh, Sixth Amendment issue here. Text messages are generally not sent for the purpose of being used in criminal proceedings. And that really is the crux of this case. Uh, here, Wedding and defendant were discussing their crimes as they were occurring, and then afterwards, when they were engaged in the acts of assisting a criminal, they were discussing how to get rid of that evidence. These text messages were specifically not sent for being used for future legal purposes. That's precisely why they were deleted from the phones. And because these were also statements between two co-conspirators, they were also not testimonial under Crawford for that reason as well. Are you familiar with the Melendez case that opposing counsel cites? Absolutely, Your Honor. Tell us why, in your view, that case doesn't support the defendant's position. Because Melinda stands for the proposition that there are going to be certain statements made for the purposes of being used in future legal proceedings. These are going to be interviews or statements given to police officers or something akin to that nature, whether they be in formal affidavits or even informal affidavits. They are not going to be the types of statements between, say, a confidential informant and his, uh, the person that he's dealing with. These are the exact types of messages that are not going to be used for future legal proceedings. And when somebody is, just, is sending these messages, that's not what is in their mind. Their mind in their mind, it's just a conversation. And that, that's what was happening here. If we look at the conversation, they are discussing how to commit their crimes, not considering that that language is actually going to be used for future legal proceedings. That's not why they're making those statements. Here, the, the, the statements were also. You agree that the states, or excuse me, the defendants' interpretation of the Melendez case and, and our rules would, would greatly expand uh, statements uh, that would now be inadmissible under their under his interpretation. Is that a fair statement? Ab absolutely, Your Honor. Uh, any kind of errant statement, even if uh, between two parties and they're not in the form of text messages, maybe they're just standing on the street and discussing, oh, I'm going to uh, get rid of the murder weapon here, I'm going to get rid of the knife. Under that reading, even such a statement would be subject to 
being inadmissible under Crawford. Now, counsel, but the argument seems to be that because they were afraid these messages might be used against them, they deleted them. Therefore, that makes them somehow testimonial. Are you aware of any, any case from any appellate court that would support that conclusion? No, Your Honor, I'm not. And I think that that really is the point. It's not that they're afraid they're going to be used for criminal proceedings. It's that they are being made for the purpose of future use in legal proceedings. And when these defendants were sending these messages to each other, they were not doing so with the anticipation that they would for the purpose that they would be used in legal proceedings. That's not why they were making these statements. They were having a conversation about murders that they just committed and about getting rid of evidence. And the message uh, is- Ms. Gore, the, the one struggle I have with the argument that you're making is uh, the fact that these conversations are not contemporaneous with the burglary. They are with the cover-up of uh, the evidence, the vehicle. Help me uh, w with that struggle I have, because I think the strength of your argument uh, that these are uh, a conversation taking place between two conspirators in the, uh, during the midst of their crime uh, is a powerful one, but uh, I, I'm troubled by the fact that uh, these are after the burglary, which is so critical to several aspects of the case. And, and while some of the messages were sent after the burglary was committed and after the murders were committed, uh, they were in reference to concealing the evidence of the crime. And this court has previously held that when there are messages that go back and forth between co-conspirators that deal with whether it's disposing of a body or something of that nature, that would still fall within the conspiracy to commit the murder, even if it occurred afterwards. And the other point on that is really we have to remember that there were two additional charges assisting a criminal. And those text messages were sent during the conspiracy to commit those crimes. So any later text messages would also fall within that particular gamut of the other crimes that were committed. And there's no question that they were conspiring to commit those crimes as well. If the court decides, if the court agrees with um, Mr. Cardozo's counsel's argument, he says that without the text messages, without wedding statements, there would not be a statu statutory aggravator <coughs> Absolutely, Your Honor. So the LWAP aggravator that was charged with the attempted uh, or murder and the attempt to commit a burglary or murder and the attempt to commit a uh, robbery, they were charged as attempts. Uh, counsel um, overlooked that point, but I think it is important to note that the state did specifically charge attempts. Uh, the second part of it is really that there was a great deal of evidence about the burglary and the robbery actually occurring, and there were items taken away from the home. In addition to the vehicle, Thomas's vehicle, that was stolen from the home, there was evidence that there was an open safe next to the bodies, and it did not contain anything of value. Uh, Wedding had offered to give his ex-girlfriend gas money and a necklace uh, for coming to see him, and that was odd, and in fact, that sparked the girlfriend calling the police in the first place to say that she believes her wedding killed these people. Inside the grocery bag uh, that was located next to Thomas's vehicle were the murder weapons, which tied them back to the crime scene there. And officers also found, along with that, an, a cell phone that belonged to Thomas's mother. And there would be absolutely no reason for that to be along with the murder weapons unless it was taken from that home at the time as well. Then, according to information that the officers received during um, uh, their investigation from one of the uh, friends of, of defendant and wedding, Real, uh, they, uh, he testified that they stole and smoked marijuana from Thomas's house. So there was at least marijuana taken, and then Wedding offered to sell a PlayStation and tablet from the house to these men when he met with them. 
Additionally, a backpack containing items from Thomas's house was found in the back seat of Thomas's vehicle when it was recovered. And the, the inference there was that that contained uh, perhaps the tablet and the PlayStation. So there, were there was definitely evidence of items taken from the home. With respect to the breaking and entering portion of the burglary, what we had is a home in the middle of the night. By all accounts, everyone was asleep inside the house. And in fact, um, in sentencing, the judge properly acknowledged that there was this, this uh, brutality in it because these, these people were caught unaware. So with these individuals sleeping inside their home, a defendant would ask this court to essentially believe that this house was completely open, that all the doors were open. He had money and marijuana from his drug dealing inside this home, and he kept all the doors open, and there was no breaking and entering. And that's simply not a reasonable inference from uh, what we can gather. And again, Babs was asleep in the living room when he was murdered, and Spears and Thomas were in a bedroom when they were murdered. So all that you just cited is collectively the state's position that even if the text messages from the accomplice were inadmissible, and we're looking at this as a harmless error, yes or no, uh, you're citing all of this evidence that would support um, the jury's finding in this case. On the LWAP aggravator, absolutely, Your Honor. And I, I would like to address uh, defendants' concerns with um, Rule of Evidence 804B. Uh, as, as a preliminary point, I'd like to point out that that is an exception to the hearsay rules, and the state's position is that none of the text messages were hearsay themselves to begin with. And because of that, 804B would apply to exceptions to the hearsay rule, and when the statements themselves are not hearsay, that, that really wouldn't come into play. So why were they not hearsay? Explain that. They were not hearsay, Your Honor, because they weren't offered to for the, to prove the truth of the matter asserted inside in them. Essentially, they... Um, what were they offered for, then? They were, they were offered to prove uh, the, the context, essentially, to, to give um, defendants uh, statements which would have been disembodied without them that would not make any sense to provide that kind of context. Most of the statements, if not 95% of them, didn't really assert anything, nothing that could be tested to be true or false. Okay, so the, so the defendant's part, portion of the conversation is not hearsay because it's his words and the, the, uh, the witness who was unavailable, his portion of the conversation was only offered to provide context. Is that, is that yes, the essence of your argument? You, you would concede that for, if for some reason the state had never recovered or, or the defendant had been successful in destroying beyond finding his portion of the text messages and all we had was the accomplice's text messages that evidentially we may have had a different situation and it may not have been admissible because there's nothing to put the context with, correct? Whether the defendant's messages or just weddings. If it was just weddings and there, there were no messages from the defendant. Oh, I think that, that gets to my second reason as to why this would not be hearsay, Your Honor, and that is because these are, are statements made in furtherance of a conspiracy. So. Again, co-conspirator statements made in furtherance of a conspiracy don't qualify as hearsay either, and that's not a hearsay exception. They're just not hearsay. So with, with that point, um, besides that they're not hearsay and 804B really not applying because of that, weddings was also not unavailable, and the defendant failed to meet his burden of showing unavailability. Now, while an attempt was made to depose wedding prior to trial, 
I've since learned um, from the docket, um, and I could point you to that, Your Honors, um, that Wedding had pled guilty six months prior to this trial. Now, while he might have pled the fifth at some deposition earlier, he had admitted his guilt to these crimes. There is no information whatsoever that any effort was made to depose him after that or to call him as a witness in order to be available for cross-examination. So again, under Evidence Rule 804B, I think that there is an issue there as well, uh, that Wedding had pled and he had admitted his guilt to these specific crimes, and there's no reason to think that he would not have testified about these messages or been subject to cross-examination about them. If there are no other questions, Your Honors, I respectfully ask this court to affirm defendant's convictions and his sentence of life without parole. Thank you, Ms. Gore. Mr. Hall, rebuttal. Or Ms. Harris, rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. May it please the court, good morning. This case is an opportunity for this court to clarify the dif difference between Evidence Rule 801D2E and 804B3. If we look at the text messages that we've been arguing about, the first thing that we must determine is whether or not they are hearsay before we invoke Crawford and get to the testimonial aspect. Under 801, the text messages would have been admissible, however, the declarant was unavailable, wedding, and therefore, we believe that invokes 804B3 and the text messages are hearsay. Counsel, do you have a response to uh, the last point that your opposing counsel just made? Uh, something of a waiver argument, I suppose, that, uh, that failed to make a record that he was truly unavailable and that perhaps he wasn't. Do you Is have a re position? reply to that at all? Yes, Your Honor. It is our position that it was the state's burden um, to provide the defendant or to provide his testimony. The defense tried to get that testimony one time and Wedding pled the fifth. I don't think it, it's the defendant's burden. Was that prior to the plea? Yes, Your Honor. It is. So did you subpoena him for, to, to testify? Did you have an order to transport? Any of those things that defense counsel I was not trial typically counsel, do? But I don't believe that he was subpoenaed. And the state did not call him as a witness. I, I would like to get to uh, Justice Moss's, and I, I apologize if I mispronounce your name. Um, Either way is fine. You asked Mr. Falk and you asked the state, so if we would have taken out those text messages because they were inadmissible hearsay, isn't that harmless error? Our contention is no. I think that was Justice David's question, by the I'm way. Sorry. It's, just, it's okay. Um, it's, it's not harmless error because we don't know what the jury, the ultimate trier in this case, would have given any emphasis just to Cardozi's text messages. Th this is an LWOP case, so the jury made the ultimate determination of guilt, and then they made the ultimate determination of whether or not he should receive life without possibility of parole. Well, you're absolutely right, but don't we have to factor in and do our analysis what evidence there was, and that's why the state alluded to or recited what they believed that would support that. Do you have any um, argument against that or, or, or other evidence that, that played in your client's favor? My argument against that, Your Honor, is that this court will not reweigh the credibility of the witnesses or the evidence that is presented. That was preserved for the jury to do. 
And if we take out those text messages without you reweighing the evidence or the testimony, we don't know what the jury would have given any emphasis on what or uh, Cardozi's text messages alone. Well, then how will we ever do a harmless error analysis under, under your argument there? We, we engage in harmless error analysis mm -hmm. more frequently than we probably would like to. Right. It seems to me you're suggesting that, no, there's no harmless error analysis. If it's inadmissible, we don't know. We can't pontificate what the jury was thinking, so therefore there is no harm. It seems to me you're suggesting there is no harmless error analysis. I think because this is an LWAP case, we have to look at this as super due process. You know, this is a case where um, the jury determined life without possibility of parole, uh, and it's the same analysis as a murder case. And so I think the standard should be a little bit higher because of um, the issue at hand. I'd also like to uh, discuss, the, the state argued that even if the evidence was insufficient to support the uh, charged statutory aggravators of the burglary and the robbery, then if we're left with the multiple murder aggravator, that would be sufficient. That is incorrect. If the court finds that the burglary or the robbery aggravator was not proven beyond a reasonable doubt, then this case must go back to a remand of sentencing or a phase two. And that is what we're asking the court to do. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Council, we appreciate um, your argument. We appreciate you coming. Um, appreciate your briefing. We will be discussing this case and issuing an opinion. All right.